21st Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Martin, it's nice to meet you and I'd like to tell you more about uh, our firm and, and myself and why, why what we do might be interesting and valuable to your listeners. So Vici Partners is a niche consulting firm, and my name is Alec Hudnut, and I'm the managing partner of the firm. And we help companies to increase their profitability in a short period of time. And the way we do that is in a very unconventional way. We do not tell our clients what to do because we believe that the answer already lies inside of the company. So if you're running a company today, and instead of going to lunch, you walked around the company and asked 10 people the following question. If you owned this business, would you do anything differently to make it more efficient or to improve our relationship with customers? And every single person you talk to will have something to say. It might be a complaint. It might be a really good, well-formed idea or initiative that could be implemented right away, but everybody will have an opinion. And so our methodology is to go out and listen to frontline workers, to mid-level managers, to suppliers, um, to customers, and ask that question. And we might get 10,000 ideas and then work over a couple month period to figure out which ones are worth implementing, which ones have a good business case, have low risk, have buy-in from the people who will have to implement it as well as the executives. And then we jointly with our clients implement a few hundred initiatives at that company. Most of them are not big, complicated, multi-million dollar, multi-year projects. Most of them are small improvements to the business, which bring a few hundred thousand euros or a few hundred thousand dollars of benefit to the company on an annualized basis. But when you add those up and you've got hundreds of them, it results in material improvement to operating income. And the second thing it does, which is almost more important than the improvement in profitability, is it actually gives voice to the organization. And when an organization feels that it has voice and that it's being treated differently than before, then employees stop acting like employees and they start acting more like owners. And once employees start like acting like owners themselves, that's when a business can really grow its top line, grow its profitability, 
grow its product invention, et cetera. So what we do is we help companies improve their profitability and in doing so, give voice to the frontline of the organization. And that voice that the frontline workers have is a very powerful mechanism for improving the business, continuing to improve the business over time. People go to work because they need the paycheck and they have to pay for their families or pay for their rent, but they also go to work for meaning. Can I make a difference in the company? Are people listening to me? Did I substantially improve something for the customer? Did I substantially improve something for my peers? And we help give companies meaning in addition to substantial improvements in profitability. So I got to Vici Partners in a, in a sort of roundabout way. Um, I, uh, I went to university. I studied political science. I wanted to be the president of the United States. <laughs> you know, um, and when I got, I got out of college, I, um, I, got my, I was lucky to get my first job at Goldman Sachs as a financial analyst. Worked there for two years. Then I went to Harvard Business School then I went to McKinsey for five years. And at McKinsey, I worked in the operations area as well as the turnaround area. And, you know, between Goldman Sachs and McKinsey, I got some very good foundations of learnings from, you know, very smart and thoughtful people uh, who, who trained me. Um, and I left McKinsey and started my first company, which uh, is in the Smithsonian, which is a museum in Washington, D.C. Uh, as the first e-learning course and first learning management system in the history of the world. So was very early in an industry that's now very large. Now we tried to deliver e-learning on dial-up on AOL, which you know, doesn't work particularly well. So my lesson from that first company was great concept too early. Uh, the, the next company I, I uh, worked at was Idea Lab, which was a technology incubator here in Los Angeles. And uh, I ended up running one of, the, one of their portfolio companies, which was a robotics company that focused on autonomous navigation. This was long before people were thinking of doing it in commercially available cars. This was autonomous navigation for robots, for unmanned aerial vehicles, for uh, you know, complex machines, and uh, ended up uh, selling that company to iRobot, which is one of the leading um, uh, robotics companies here in the United States and, and in the world, and then spun out some technology from that and created a scanner company that could recognize packaged goods without having to read the barcode just by looking at the patterns on the packaging, ended up selling that company to the leading flatbed scanner company in the world, which is in Italy in Bologna called Datalogic, which makes flatbed scanners. And we help 
them take what was a commodity product and make it a highly differentiated product. So you didn't just need, you know, if you couldn't see the barcode when the item went across uh, the checkout stand, it still might be recognized by our software. So it helps with throughput, it helps with loss prevention, reducing theft, um, and uh, that was, you know, very exciting. And then uh, a few years later, um, ended up um, working at a, at a bank here in the U.S. called Green Dot Bank that had pioneered uh, the prepaid debit card, which is like having a Visa or MasterCard that you load money onto, which was a new invention here in the U.S. And I ran a $600 million uh, business there. And then two of my friends from McKinsey had started this consulting firm, Vici Partners, and they reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to join them. And I did. And I've been doing it for almost uh, 10 years now and just love the type of consulting we do. We, 75% of our fees are based on contingency, on actually generating positive cash flow at our clients, which is one of the real weaknesses of most consulting firms is they just hand you a big fancy report and that's it. And it costs you $3 million for it. We stick around and help them successfully implement initiatives. And it's very satisfying. Also, we don't have junior people in our company. Every one of our consultants is in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. They've been an executive at a company. They have been uh, a partner at a consulting firm. They've owned their own businesses. And we feel that more senior seasoned people are able to sniff out in those 10,000 ideas that get generated at a company as things that are worthwhile doing. What are the 100 or 200 that actually should be implemented? Have enough consensus, have a good enough business case, have low enough risk. And so we love our model. We're very successful. And um, we, we serve our clients incredibly well. reason that senior people are important um, and are the only type of people that we bring to our clients as consultants is because most consultants focus on the quality of an idea or the business case or the initiative and it's all about how smart you are you know can you build a good spreadsheet can you can you point out something that maybe the client didn't see or the market didn't see and that's all important. But we believe that consulting can be simplified into a formula, which is Q times B equals V. The quality of the idea times the buy-in for the idea equals the value of the idea in successful implementation. And so who's going to do the B better? Who's going to do the buy-in better? The 28-year-old who just graduated from Harvard Business School who thinks she's the smartest person on the planet and she just might be, or the 50-year-old who's run three $500 million divisions and who has had to hit budget every year 
and had to convince people to actually do things uh, with him to successfully implement budget in a year. It's the more experienced person who's been inside of companies, who knows how to develop buy-in. And so um, our consulting practice can be simplified into a formula. The quality of the idea times the buy-in for the idea equals the value that the idea can generate during implementation. And that B part is much better done by experienced people who have operated inside of company for years. This is the fourth company that I've built. So I've been an entrepreneur for 20 years and I can talk a little bit about, you know, how I've gotten better at it and what mistakes I made. Um, so, you know, I, I have been fortunate to, to have been involved in either starting or turning around for, you know, startups or small companies and making them, you know, much bigger uh, and, and, and acquirable, uh, by other companies. And I, and I certainly have learned it the hard way. The, the first one, the e-learning company, great idea too early in the market, sold it to a direct competitor. Um, but you know, it was not a great exit. And the lesson I learned from that was don't hire people who are exactly like me. It doesn't help. Um, so, you know, I was, uh, I came out of McKinsey at the time and a lot of the senior team were ex-McKinsey people that I knew and that I felt comfortable with. But, you know, it's more important to have a different set of skill sets at the senior team than a bunch of people that speak the same language. The skill sets, so I learned in that first one, the skill sets are really, really important. Um, in the second company, Evolution Robotics, which was sold to iRobot, what I learned there is focus. So we were at the beginnings of really, the, real, the early stages of the commercial robotic industry. And we, we had visual pattern recognition technology that was excellent for recognizing objects and great in allowing autonomous navigation for, for robots. And so, the, the challenge was, well, what do we focus on, right? When, when, when it's a brand new industry, what are you trying to do? And so it took us a while to try a bunch of different things until we focused in on um, perfecting our visual pattern recognition system for the purpose of navigation, as well as building uh, robots that, that did vacuum cleaning for consumers. And so I, in the second company, I really learned the value of focus and developing sufficient intellectual property around that focus area. In the third company, which, which was a scanner company uh, named Evolution Robotics Retail, because we focused on the retail market, um, what I learned there was that um, you have to set pricing based on the value that's generated for the client. And what you think you're selling initially 
isn't always what is most valuable for the customer. So we sold a scanner that could recognize packaged goods and see if an item that had been left in the cart was paid for. And if it wasn't paid for, we added it to the transaction automatically. Pretty cool technology, right? And installed in tens of thousands of grocery stores across the world and saving each grocery store about $10 a day per lane, which was about 5% of their annual profit in many grocery stores. So we thought that was the most valuable thing. But was what was really valuable to the grocery stores, which we didn't understand, was that a grocery store might have 100 cashiers. And if we could tell the loss prevention people, who were the three cashiers in a given month who were most likely to let items go buy them unpaid for, then those cashiers were probably also stealing from the, from the store. And the typical cashier in the US market would steal about $100,000 worth of product a year. And so what became more valuable to the grocery stores was tell us which cashiers you think are letting items out on the bottom of the basket more than others. And our system could record that. We timestamp you know, every single transaction where we caught something going out, we pair it to a cashier and we flow that information back to the loss prevention department and the grocery store. And that became as valuable or more valuable to our customers than catching the item before it went out the store. Um, and then, the, you know, the fourth company was really, you know, how do you, how do you take a consulting firm in a industry that's very crowded with excellent brand names, who've had long established relationships with CEOs and CFOs at, at big companies and get in the door. And so we just focused on, we're going to do this one thing only. We're going to improve profitability by 25% within two years. And we're going to do it on a principally on a contingency basis. So you only pay us when it occurs. And that addresses the complaint that most, most CEOs have about consulting firms, which is they're paying tens of millions of dollars a year and what benefit are they getting? So we're, we're addressing that issue. You're, you're paying us when you can validate that the benefit has occurred. Almost every employee in a company has the potential to, to have the entrepreneurial mindset and to act like an owner. And if they're not, guess what? It's your fault as the CEO. It is your fault as the entrepreneur because you are not treating your employees as if they are owners, as if they are entrepreneurs. Let me give you a story of one of my favorite employees in a big, uh, you know, multiple tens of thousands of person, multiple tens of billions of dollars insurance company in the United States. So we were doing an idea generation session in the mailroom at this large health insurance company. And one of the operators in the mailroom said, we seem to be sending out a lot more mail than we used to. Now, this is in the time of the internet, right? 
why are we sending out a lot more mail when we can distribute that electronically? And so I said to the operator, so I said, so how much mail are you sending out? And he said, I don't know, but, you know, I was talking to my buddies who were in the other mail rooms and they're having the same issue. And let's, you know, we just seem to be sending out a lot more mail. So I said, well, let's figure out how much mail you're sending out every year. And there were over 30 different mail centers across this large building, a large company in many, many buildings. There's no mail budget. So you can't actually just look at a number and figure out how much they're spending on mail. It took us six weeks to figure out, going division by division, how much they were spending on mail. Guess what? They were spending a quarter billion dollars of mail every, uh, mail every year. The company only had $1.7 billion of annual profit. So a quarter billion dollars of mail is a lot of money, right? That's, that's a complete waste. And so we, we worked with the guy in the mailroom and we decided, okay, we know we've got a good idea. Let's focus on getting buy-in for it by going after the most obvious piece of mail that shouldn't be sent out. And let's start with that. And then we'll chip our way and, and get to the rest of the 250 million. So we went after the 250, of, of the $250 million, they were sending nine and a half million dollars of overnight Federal Express to themselves, to their own offices every year. So, you know, why are you doing that? Does it have to get there in the morning? Could it get there in the afternoon? Could it be two day? Could you email it? And so we met with, you know, the different division heads that were, had these policies of FedExing things out. One of them was, um, the head of HR who always wanted to FedEx out the new programs, either to the office building to be distributed or to people's homes. And we worked with her to create an interactive web-based um, description of the new program, which also allowed employees to sign up for the program in the application. So it was cheaper to deliver and it increased sign up. She piloted it for three or four weeks. She bought into it and, Four and a half million of that nine and a half million was just her. So that guy in the mailroom, when he rides up the elevator now at corporate headquarters and is standing next to the CFO, the CFO knows who he is. The CFO thanks him for finding nine and a half million dollars and says, you got any other good ideas? Because I like that first one. And so now the guy in the mailroom feels like an owner. He feels empowered. He's been given the green light to be entrepreneurial. And he is going to have other good ideas in his next you know, 10 years of serving the company. And so listening more, you know, as a CEO, your job is really to serve your employees, to serve your suppliers, to serve your customers, to serve your shareholders. And if you serve your employees by saying, if you would own the company, what would you do differently? And then listening to them and implementing the best of those ideas, you will give meaning to frontline employees. And once you give meaning to them, they will feel more comfortable being entrepreneurial.
So when we work with clients, whether they are a $200 million company or a $50 billion company, they all have the same issue, which is everybody's too busy and growth program on top of everything else that they're doing. And our answer back is that by doing this, you will simplify your life. You will simplify the company operations. You will de-stress the company because most of the initiatives, let's, let's take um, in a call center. So let's say you're not doing first call resolution in a call center, which is answering the call and resolving the caller's issue in one phone call. Let's say you're not yet doing that in your call center. If you can reorient the call center around answering people's problems first, you're going to have a more satisfied customer. You're going to spend less time with them. And because you spend less time with them, you're going to need fewer resources. And so you're going to be able to trim expenses from the call center while at the same time making it easier and more satisfying for the people in the call center. So good earnings growth, good profitability, reduces the stress on the organization, minimizes its work to the things that matter most, and cuts out the extraneous meetings, the extraneous activities. And, you know, a great company, when you leave work at the end of the day, your cup should have been filled up and not drained. You should feel better at the end of the day than you felt at the beginning and you should be happy to go home and not have to have two drinks before you can sit down and talk to your wife right great companies understand that uh taking care of their workers empowering their workers decreasing stress is possible and is one of the what an important goal of the ceo and by trimming out unnecessary activities or focusing the company around only the most important things Simplification is allowed to occur, and in simplification comes stress reduction. The more you can keep great people there, the better your company's going to be. Vici Partners does only one thing, and that's earnings growth work on a contingency basis. We work with companies from 200 million in revenue to companies greater than 50 billion in, in revenue. And we are typically improving operating income by at least 25% within a two year period. We work across the globe. We have clients in Europe, in the US, in Latin America, in Asia. If you are an executive at a company like that and you're interested in talking to us, please reach out. Um, you can either reach me directly on my email at ahudnut, that's A-H-U-D-N-U-T, at vicipartners.com, V-I-C-I, partners with an S, dot com. Or you can just go look at us on the website uh, at www.vicipartners.com. We love serving uh Owners, we love ser serving CEOs of big public companies. We love serving 
private equity portfolio companies. And since 75% of our fee is paid on when cash flow is successfully delivered to you from our work, it's, it's a relatively low risk uh, project to say yes to. Thank you very much. Twenty-first Century Entrepreneurship with Martin Piskarik. Imagine a space where triumphs, trials, and tales of entrepreneurship come alive. Welcome to the Twenty-First Century Entrepreneurship Podcast. A Gold Awarded Journey, hosted by Martin Piskorik. Connecting with listeners in 95 countries and ranking in the top 0.5% of all podcasts. Join our exclusive community, elevate your perspective, and embark on the path to success.